Thank you for joining another wonderful episode of Success Innovation. Today's episode is called Beyond Spare Parts. In this episode, I have the great pleasure of meeting in a virtual form one of the great catalysts for the movie Spare Parts. Our guest today is Freddy Lajbardi, who is currently the VP of STEM initiatives at Cisa Puede Foundation since 2018. He was a STEM educator for over 28 years in Arizona. He is one of the teachers who helped a team of minority students from high school reach a dream by beating Ivy League colleges. Yes, you heard correct. High school student versus college students. I had a great conversation with Freddie about many things. Thank you for joining. Let's get started. Welcome back to another wonderful episode of Success Innovation. Today, today I have the wonderful honor and opportunity. If you've seen the movie or read the book, and it's called Spare Parts with George Lopez, you probably know about that. And this is the real live person that this movie is actually talking about and focusing as far as the teacher goes. His name is Freddie, Freddie Lajbardi. He's a STEM educator at Carl Hayden High School in Arizona. He's been doing that for over 28 years. He's a mentor at large and vice president of STEM initiatives at the Si Se Puede Foundation since 2018. He has been fe featured in images as Dream Big for the IMAX theater, book and movie called Spare Parts, and the, the documentary for Underwater Dreams. Welcome, Freddie Lajvardi, to Success Innovation. How are you today, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thank you for being here with me and the audience for Success Innovation. Thank you so much. So um, can you tell me a little bit about who you are, uh, your early beginnings, where you were born, and a little bit about your childhood and how you jumped into being an educator? Okay, well, I was born in Tehran, Iran, and my parents moved here when I was about a year old and uh, grew up in the United States and went to the American public education system and uh, recognized when I was going through school that I liked science and technology. Um, and my high school career, I basically was entering and competing in science fairs. I was building hovercraft, uh, first little models that would operate on the table, but eventually I had them large enough for me to ride in and uh, travel across the basketball court at school. So uh, with that, I ended up getting a scholarship to Arizona State University. Uh, I changed my major several times. I was going in for some type of thing like solar engineering, sports medicine, and then I ended up settling on teaching. And I came around to that because I kept visiting my uh, teacher that used to help me run the, or compete in the science fair programs. And she kept asking me why I wasn't pursuing an education degree because she thought that I would make a good teacher because she said I was able to convince people to do things they didn't think they could do. So um, eventually I, I broke down and listened to her and uh, went and got my education degree. Um, and then I started working in the public school system. So that's kind of how I ended up there. Right. Awesome. So you started and, and I heard you talking a couple of days back uh, at Bakersfield college and you mentioned that initially it was a little hard and it became frustrating as a young teacher going in with all the expectations i'm going to take on the world i'm going to change everybody i'm whoever is my student is going to be the best student who i'm going to nurture and change and mold 
but then you get into the school system. Carl Hayden, I'm assuming this is the school that you started or maybe some other school, but things drastically get real for you because there's the red tape, there's the school district situation and what they allow you to do and not to do as well as the funding that goes into the classes. So there, there was a point from what I heard in that conversation that you started getting frustrated. So what actually happened there and how did that get turned around? So when I was, uh, like you said, just out of the Arizona State University, my education degree, I thought I was go out there and change the world. And right away I started noticing obstacles that were making that difficult. Um, you had the uh, school curriculum that you had to follow. You weren't allowed to really deviate too much from that because you were also being evaluated. And uh, then there were, you know, the regular school red tape <clears throat> as far as trying to do anything, um, I guess, extraordinary other than just what's going on in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And so trying to get anything extra in there was real difficult. So I realized right away that I was getting disenfranchised with education. And if I was going to stay in it, I had to find a way to enjoy it because I figure if I enjoy it and, and you know, can share that with the kids, they'll enjoy it. And then, you know, we'll both be able to do science and technology type stuff and, and have fun at the same time. And learning will happen much more comfortably. And I'd be able to stay in the profession and not, you know, start to look for something else. So the only thing that came to mind was to start doing activities after school because there were a lot less regulations. Um, they didn't really provide any funding. You had to pretty much go out and find your own funding. But as far as what you wanted to do, if the kids and I decided we want to do a science fair, it was known to say you couldn't do it. And as long as you could find a way to make stuff happen, you were able to do it. So that was what I started finding as far as a way to connect with the kids. Because I felt like I needed to be able to spend time playing with science and technology with the kids because I had to take it out of the realm of this is <clears throat> something you have to learn and it's going to come out of a book and it's very dry and you have to listen to a lecture and then take notes and then have a test on it. I wanted to show them how it was more directly related to them and their lives and uh, how they can use it to uh, uh, maybe make a career in that. But if not, at least give them a better understanding of the world and how things work. So you mentioned trying to keep the students engaged. And if anybody's watched the movie, there's a scene mm -hmm. right there where the teacher says, hey, why isn't anybody cracking a book open? Mm -hmm. And they focus and they pan over to a student and says, well, they're right there. And they pan over and it's locked. And he says, why are they locked? Because they don't want them to steal them. So, you know, it's a funny moment, but it's a very poignant moment to me because mm -hmm. I do have recollections from conversations with other students at and this is over in the LA area where they actually do lock up and they have metal detectors for students to actually walk through. So it's not a too far fetched idea. So when I saw that, I was like, yeah, that, that could possibly be true. Was this something that you were going through that we talk about the budget that, you know, people are concerned about books and materials and you can only check out certain things and whatnot. How did you manage to keep students engaged and to actually say, you know, You've, you, you students have spent about six or seven hours in school, but I want you to stay after school and do more. How did you manage to do that? Because a lot of students are going to say, you know what, you're, you're out of your mind. I'm going home. I got other stuff to do. So uh, just to make a point of clarification, uh, the story Spare Parts is about a combination of two teachers, mm -hmm. myself and Alan Cameron. So there's that mixture. But as far as what I was going through, 
the way I found to get the kids excited was to, at first, you know, you start small. You, you say, let's maybe do a science fair project and maybe you get one or two kids that are kind of the nerdy kids that are interested. And the idea was that if other students see activity going on, that they might get curious and may want to join. Hmm. So one of the tricks was to try to find science fair projects that were interesting that would catch the attention of the other kids. Even if it wasn't enough to make them join, it was enough to make them pay attention. So the next year, maybe, that if whatever we're doing, they would jump in. What really caught kids' attention were the field trips. Mm. So, you know, we would arrange a field trip, and, and one of the field trips was to go to the Solar and Electric 500, which was an electric car, solar and electric car race. And so the kids, it didn't seem like they really, at least in the area I was there, that they were being taken to events like that. So they were totally, uh, what's the word, um, surprised or excited that there was such a thing as a car that can drive by the power of the sun right. uh, and that they had the electric cars that were going faster that you can recharge by plugging them in the wall. So that kind of got their interest. And one of the other projects we did that got a lot of people interest, sometimes it's the weirdest things you don't think are going to be very exciting, but it turns out that some of the, what I would consider the most stupid and mundane things are the things the students are interested in the most. So around Halloween time, we used to build these catapults that oh, okay. would launch pumpkins. Right. And, you know, out of all the YouTube videos that we loaded up, even to this day, those videos have the most hits. And they have the most, I'd say, lack of educational value compared to the other stuff that we have up there. But because you're using gravity to throw pumpkins and watching them smash, for some reason, that was very exciting. Um, <laughs> so it's that kind of atmosphere that you start to build around. The other thing is kids like to work. I noticed right away, especially when we were doing the science fair, it was hard to get them to do stuff, but they like to work in teams or in groups. So being a part of something bigger than themselves takes the pressure off of them, and it also lets them participate in a project that they probably couldn't do without the help of other students. Right. So when they were done, like, you know, making a catapult that is uh, 20 feet tall and can have a 400-pound counterweight, that's, that's something to throw a football, uh, a pumpkin almost the length of a football field. That's something that no kid could ever do on their own. Right. So, right. so that's what attracted a lot of people initially to these after-school antics that we were doing. Right. Uh, off of that, you know, off of that era when you first started doing the uh, the whole science fair and the catapults with the pumpkin throwing catapults, what's your fondest memory up to this point off of that time? You know, uh, it's uh, there's been so many. It's hard to tell you exactly which one but I can tell you the type of memory okay and it's when you see the kids come up with the solution that you yourself didn't even think of mm. and on the face of it it's like wow that was so simple why didn't we think of that <laughs> sooner yeah. right. I think that the aha moment is what I enjoy I mean it happened with the electric car program it happened with robotics it happened with the underwater robot it's when you see the kids get it and then they can see how it can relate to them and how it can affect their future. Um, and then the other one I'd have to say, it's a close second, is when kids come back years later and they tell you how much it changed their lives being involved in these kinds of activities. What did it do? Now, whether or not it actually did, that's hard to say. You know, they just may have fond memories. But nevertheless, when they tell you about it, it still feels good. I think to a certain degree they are, right? Because there's got to be a point and a catalyst. And you as a teacher planted the seed. And I tell this to my own kids, my, my 13 and 11 year old, I said, you know, what I'm telling you now, I won't see 
the fruits of it until years later. So it's, it's what I also tell young professionals, you know, what you do now, it's you're sowing stuff at this point, which you'll reap the fruits and benefits of it later in a couple of years. So don't expect, you know, rewards right away to a certain extent, you got to be patient. So that's essentially what I'm, what I'm preaching. And that's essentially what you, what yeah. you're teaching those kids. So that delayed gratification. Exactly. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And then, uh, you know, you started, you know, the, uh, then back in 2004, Mm -hmm. this is when it gets to the movie portion where you have a group of four students that are shown in that movie. Uh, There Mm -hmm. might've been more in real life, but at at the same time, there's some reality there where you had a group of students mixed immigrants and legal citizens and undocumented students. How was that and what's, how did that happen? Well, at the time, it wasn't an issue. Um, Mm -hmm. Ever since I started working at Carl Hayden, it was common knowledge Mm -hmm. that there were undocumented students. uh, And we didn't know which one was which, you know, it's not like they have a label or anything on them. They're students and they need to be taught and that's your job as a teacher. So it's something we never really gave thought to. It wasn't until the media started paying attention uh, after the success, a year later after the success, that all of a sudden the status of the students was starting to be in question. I mean, we were getting emails at the school saying, why are you helping undocumented kids? I mean, even when the article was being researched. I had no clue that they were going to mention that the students were undocumented. It was just a given fact that everyone just lived with. And you got to remember back in 2004, it was just beginning to be a hot button issue. It wasn't really as, as on fire as it is today. Mm -hmm. So um, it was at the the early stages of that. And it turns out, and and we don't know if this is true, but it, it felt like it that anytime we got media in Arizona, that it seemed like the state legislature would then pass some kind of new law or regulation that made it harder for undocumented students. And we almost felt like it was a direct response to the fact that we were showing that students were having success regardless of their immigration status. Mm. And so it opened up their eyes, so to speak, and they thought, well, we better stop this as soon as we can. Mm -hmm. And our students kept finding ways to, to go to college, whether it was through special scholarships designated for undocumented students or uh, however it was, because the bottom line was, and this is what we told the students, it doesn't, doesn't, you know, it's not a matter of if you get, uh, you know, the deported. The question is, what do you want to be deported as? Mm -hmm. So as long as you're here, what kind of education can you get? Because I mean, if you get a medical degree or an engineering degree, you can practice anywhere in the world except the United States. Mm-hmm. And the United States is not the only place in the world. Mm-hmm. And it would be our loss if they mm-hmm. don't find a way to allow you to stay in the United States. So mm-hmm. as a teacher, that was our only, that was our major focus was that regardless of your situation, even if you have to raise more funds, even if you have to spend more time trying to find a way to go to college, that's something nobody can take away from you. Right. And right. if you can get that, you've set up your life in a way that most people around the world would envy. That is correct. So now, you know, it's the uh, legal status is is a hot button, as you said right now. But at that time, you know, you're in the school, you guys are working as a team, et cetera, et cetera. But then somehow it gets real and you have to cross 
state lines. Mm -hmm. And you as a teacher, <laughs> yeah, and this is where I'm going with that because uh -huh. I, I too had that when I was growing up as kids, even as students, we knew that most of us were in that same boat mm -hmm. and nobody ever spoke about it. It was uns a, a unspoken situation, mm -hmm. but you all assume that that's what it, that's the way it was. And we all understood each other. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm reflecting back. You're a teacher at that point, right? Mm -hmm. So you're, you have a job and your task or you're volunteering to drive a bunch mm -hmm. of students where you are not sure about their legal status. You know that you have to cross border lines. Mm -hmm. And for those who are watching, border lines in Southern California, in the Western side of the United States, wherever you cross, there's uh, INS or immigration checkpoint. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, did you consider the repercussions of what you were just about to do? Was that even crossing your mind? And mm -hmm. how did you make that choice? So we learned early on, and I don't know if it was necessarily during that particular trip or any other trip, but that, um, like you said, everyone knew it. So we would tell the students not to bring any other ID other than their school ID. Mm. And to make sure, following the law, that it's a government issued ID if it has an address, like the Carl Hayden High School, Phoenix, Arizona, you know, 3333 West Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. And if they were ever questioned, say, show your ID, that's the only ID they could show. So that's, that's one. And then two, being in a school van, chances are at that time, I don't know so much nowadays because now I'm not doing that. But at the time, you know, if you're a school van or if it's a charter bus, for that example, and it's a school team, they're not going to go and check the status. They have no way of checking the status of each kid. Mm -hmm. So they can decide to hold everybody and then find out they wasted their time and, or just let it go. Now, kids are also seen as innocent. So it's not as, as uh, intimidating, like you're bringing illegal people over here to do whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think that's how come we kind of just kind of just had these basic rules. Just, okay. you, don't, you, know, you don't have to speak to anybody if they stop and talk to you. That's your right. Uh, chances are they're not going to stop and talk to you. Uh, we've had parents ask us and even tell us, please bring our kid back. And we're like, well, right. we've yes. never been, we've never lost a kid yet. We can't guarantee we won't. Mm -hmm. If you don't want them to go, you know, because we don't know what would happen. And I used right. to even ask the district, what is the policy if one of the kids get detained? Do I have to stay with the kid? I mean, I am technically responsible for the kid. And as you mentioned, and that is the case. I was doing this for 20, 30 years. So for 20, 30 years, I was transporting students. with my knowledge or without my knowledge, students, right. students that were illegal across right. state lines. So right. I've been breaking federal law uh, my whole teaching career. Right. And it was just no way around it. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel fortunate that I've never lost a student. Right. And so I, 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 I'm glad I quit while I was ahead, so to speak. Right. Right. Well, um, you know, but I don't envy that situation. But right. um, typically, if you're a school function, they usually don't, especially if it's a bigger trip like a, a charter bus, they never really check the individual status because it would be a waste of time. Right. However, given the current situation and the current government, that is a real possibility. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, and, and the question was just to see 
what your mindset was at that time when you first did it and how you actually felt if you were nervous or if anything a little. crossed your mind. Okay, all right. Okay. A little, but it was in the back of our mind. Okay, 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 fantastic. And so, you know, you were going to that Santa Barbara competition mm -hmm. and you had registered to enter in competition with heavy hitters like MIT, Cornell, Harvard. What prompted you as the teacher to actually register a high school to go up against uh, college students? So we wanted to learn as much as we could from this okay. endeavor. And we, we learned by this time that we learned the most when we failed. And so we kind of put two and two together. Well, if we want to learn how to do this competition, you know, within a year to be competitive, we got to fail more. So, so we thought, where would we fail the most? In other words, where would we have the most opportunity to learn? Would it be against other high school students that may have the same level of abilities? Or would it be against university kids? So we thought, for sure, if we enter in the university category, that they're going to obliterate us. But that wasn't the reason. The reason was, we were going to go there, and it was a week-long competition. We'd have the students with, you know, notepads, ask the different uh, teams what components they put on their robot, what strategies were they using, whatever questions they can come up with. And then the plan was to, you know, meet in the hotel room in the evening and then put up these, these notes and put them in the categories. So one would be the things that we can do within a year and the things that would take, you know, longer or that we can't do. The idea to help us focus, what can we do to come back to be more competitive? So for us, it was an experiment. We, we had no intention of actually competing. Now, having said that, we didn't want to be embarrassed. So we did the best we could. Right. That our hope was that we would finish ahead of just one team. I mean, that was kind of what we were looking for. When, when you register the team, how much time did you actually have leading up to the competition to complete the robot and get ready so for it? Registration is sometime, I think, in uh, late September, October, and you have until June the next year okay. to compete. So we had quite a bit of time. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. And then a couple, you know, based on the movie and based on what I know about competition, there's trial and error, there's revisions to your design. <laughs> so how did that evolve within your team? And what was the frustration like within the team? So you said it exactly right. For us, you know, we'd never built an underwater robot. So the idea of putting electronics in water just seemed kind of scary. Yeah. But we used trial and error. We'd make little experiments for things to do in the classroom. And I happened to be the marine science teacher as well. So I had lots of fish tanks. Okay. So we were able to test stuff in the water. Some of the things were, you know, we call experts supposedly and say, well, you know, we want to use this RS-232 cable for a tether for a robot. And they go, oh, that's no problem. You know, people use six foot tethers all the time. They say, well, we want to make ours 50 feet. And they'd say, well, we don't know if the signals will travel that far. So instead of letting us, letting that stop us, we said, okay, we're going to get as many of these six feet cables and plug them together and then see if we can control a robot from 50 feet away. So we didn't just take the thought of the day or what's the word called it? The, the science of the, of the day to dictate whether we could or couldn't do something, we wanted to find out for ourselves. Right. You did trial and error type of thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and right. so we were able to control a robot. Now, the one area that was a little iffy was the video image that we would get from 50 feet where the video cables are traveling right next to these signals. 
was not the best video, but was it adequate enough to drive a robot? Yes. Mm. So we figured that's going to be our tether because the main thing that separated us, and we didn't know this at the time, was that we had our batteries on board the robot. Okay. Um, because we didn't know in the real world, you don't do that because if you send a robot to the bottom of the ocean, you don't want to take four hours to go down and it runs for an hour and you got to take four hours to pull it back up and then change the battery. You put your batteries on the surface. Right. So you have to run a totally different electrical scheme, which would mean heavier cables, more wire, uh, all that stuff. We just wanted to be able to control the robot. So we figured, well, this doesn't make any sense to put your batteries on the surface because then you have to have all these extra heavy wires mm-hmm. going down to the robot. Right. Um, yeah. So we just figured, no, we want, because low voltage signals that don't have a lot of current can travel 50 feet. Right. High current, you know, even if you travel 10 feet, you can lose the power of your motors so that you'd have to have five times as much voltage on the surface to get that voltage to travel the length of wire. So right. it was a complication we did not want to add to the right. robot. Exactly. And, and it turned out that gave more, us right? it yep. gave us the huge advantage, but that was just trial and error. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you mentioned here as huge advantage and you obviously go into the competition and you start seeing that colleges are kind of dropping off and you're moving ahead, et cetera, et cetera. And then it gets down to the judges asking the verbal questions to the students. Mm-hmm. You obviously mentioned before in, in other conversations that some students were not well STEM inclined per se, but they also being part of the team had to understand how the whole um, robot actually work and be able to explain it in layman's terms. So Mm -hmm. how was that approach taken by you? Was it something that you helped the students or was it something that the team itself helped the other members of the team to actually cope and practice and rehearse certain Mm -hmm. responses or or Mm -hmm. how did that go? So the four kids, because there's a, sometimes people get confused with the movie because Hollywood Mm -hmm. has its own version, but the four kids all were involved in building the robot. Right. So it wasn't that they didn't know how to explain it. Where they may have lacked a little bit of information was the actual terminology that might be used. Mm -hmm. And, and so we would help polish their presentation, Mm -hmm. but, also, the other thing we knew was, and we, we just knew this just from being teachers, that there was no way that our students were going to know more than the students at these universities. Mm-hmm. So we looked at the rubric that the judges would give out for the type of things that would be in your report, and we knew that the questions were going to derive from the report that was submitted. So we pretty much stuck closely to what the rubric was. The rubric would say, what, what problems did you encounter in building this robot? And then how did you overcome those problems? Mm -hmm. So we figured these aren't difficult questions. These are questions that we actually can answer. And so we focused on the kids to just talk about the stuff you know. Don't talk about the stuff you don't know. There's no way you can. And if the judges ask you something that you don't know, just say, sir, unfortunately, I'm not familiar with that. I don't understand that. And just go from there. Mm -hmm. And we were hoping that that would be the, the right approach. But nevertheless, you know, they did practice. It was a matter of polish. So they stopped saying the uhs all the time, like uh, uh, uh. And maybe someone's doing fidgety stuff. It's the little presentation things that we kind of honed in and and made them practice. And then at the competition, prior to the actual presentation, we told them to just go out around campus and stop a student or two and ask them if you can explain your robot to them. 
And they kind of laughed at people who listen to us. They go, well, they're students. They'll be nice. They'll just listen to you and see what you, what you say. Mm-hmm. And they ended up liking it. And they said the students actually asked them questions. Wow. So okay. They actually cold, what do you, you can't call it cold crank, cold presented okay. to a random kid just walking by on mm-hmm. campus. And I helped, I think that helped them a lot. Okay. You built up their confidence by doing that exercise and you put more repetition in the way yeah. that they presented. That's awesome. That's incredible. You, so that confidence kind of built up and it went on. So, you know, the movie actually shows something about there's a leak going into the actual box of mm-hmm. the robot itself where all mm-hmm. the secretary is. That is real from yeah. what I understand. That is, that is true. And then there's a scene there where there's a, a, a student comes up with the idea of a tampon. Can you kind of walk us through that a little bit? So, so the actual story. So yes. the day before we had a, a practice session and we yeah. were driving the robot and it wasn't operating correctly. So we pulled it over and it had been in maybe only five minutes. And we opened up the lid of the electronics housing and noticed there was a little bit of water. But we also noticed a few wires had been disconnected that were previously soldered. And that may have happened in the journey from Arizona to California. The sun was probably hitting the robot. Maybe it got too hot. Maybe the jiggling did it, whatever. Mm-hmm. We knew we had to solder the wires and we needed to go to a several stores to buy some thin solder and a solder gun because we just didn't think that was going to happen. So we had to do that. The other problem was the housing that the electronics was in, where the watertight seal was, was a slight deformation or indentation that may have been caused by someone who was working on the robot and touched the solder gun to the plastic. Mm. It had a slight deformation. So it wasn't like water was pouring in like crazy, but over a 30-minute period of time, that would be an issue. So we were trying to find dinner, driving around in Santa Barbara with the school van, and Alan Cameron mentioned that diapers have this material called desiccant. It's a powder that goes between the layers of the fabric so it can absorb more liquid so the diaper doesn't leak. And I mentioned how, yeah, when we used to do electric vehicles, I knew a teacher at another school made their students go buy maxi pads so they would absorb the sulfuric acid that might leak out from the batteries. And you don't want the 96 volts from the batteries touching the chassis because your 12-volt lights and radio and everything else is connected. But you don't want to burn those out. So the maxi pads would absorb any uh, sweating, as they called it, of the batteries. Mm-hmm. But you know, the, again, that was also too large. But Christian had sisters, and he brought up the idea of tampons because I guess he had had, I don't necessarily think experience, but exposure to mm-hmm, tampons. And mm-hmm. so he kind of knew the dimensions and, and how it could be used. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have any clue, but we agreed that it sounded like the most logical choice. So okay. um, then we decided by everybody in, in, insisting that everyone else would go get the tampons, we all finally agreed that Lorenzo uh, he's kind of the joker of the group that he would be the best person to go get the tampons. And he agreed to take one for the team. And so we told him, you're going to wait in the feminine hygiene aisle in the store. And then as soon as a woman comes by, you're going to get one shot. You have to say, hi, my name is Lorenzo. And we have this robot that's underwater and it, it has a leak and we're in a competition and we want to stop the leak, but we don't know which tampon to use. Could you help me? So we don't know if he said it. He claims he said verbatim what we told him. And he said at first the woman was scared, but then she couldn't stop laughing. And so you can see these these two minds, someone who knows about tampons and someone who knows about our needs, but they don't know each other. And so they have to work together to get to this solution 
Right. And they come up with the OB tampons because they were the smallest and you didn't need an applicator. And Lorenzo didn't want to ask what that was, but he figured if it was, you didn't need it, that's a good thing. Right. And so we ended up strategically, you know, placing these in the robot. Um, we even tested it in the hotel room because we're scientists. We're curious right. how much, yes, how much water sure. does one tampon hold? <laughs> so we figured that one tampon holds about three ounces of water, four ounces of water within about a second. So we figured, okay, these are great. And we put them all over the robot too. We knew the robot was going to leak. We knew some of the tampons or all the tampons would fill up with water, but we were pretty confident that the water wouldn't slosh around and short circuit stuff. Right. And it did exactly what it was supposed to do. Yes, for sure. It's fantastic. That's an awesome story. And that's why I wanted you to tell it because <laughs> it's, 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 it's a crazy story, but it's the quirky adventures that one goes through and the camaraderie that gets built off of those experiences yep. stays in your mind for a very, very long time. And it builds those strong bonds in a team. And I think that's what actual live competitions make. And mm -hmm. now we've pivoted to more of a virtual situation where students, you know, robotics competitions, at least in California, I don't know if in Arizona, are still happening and gathering. And you, you are working with an organization called Si Se Puede. And you are the vice president of STEM initiatives. How did that happen? So after working in the public education uh, system for 30 years, I decided I wanted a change, a change of lifestyle as well, to be able to spend a little more time at home and not be gone so many hours because being a teacher and then having basically a full-time job after school mm -hmm. was was enough for 30 years but i did want to stay in education in a way where i could utilize the expertise that i gained over my career so i met alberto esparza and uh expressed my interest to in wanting to work for the organization and at that time i was mostly thinking at the collegiate level that wasn't necessarily you know gender-based it was just robotics team at the college level because so many kids that go through all these high school programs go to college and then they feel disillusioned because now it's just book learning test, book learning test. And so there was no hook to keep them engaged in college. I and mean, those kind of projects don't come until you're grad students and that type of thing. And so I wanted to create the same kind of magnet that caused the students to stay engaged in high school at the college level so kids could graduate, go to college and still, you know, stay in engineering and not give up on it before they had a chance to get their degree. And then when I was doing research on my last year of teaching, I bumped into some reports that were talking about the statistics of women in engineering. And the mission of Cisa Puede is to serve underserved populations. And so I thought, well, women in engineering is definitely an underserved population. Uh, there's not enough women, there's not enough resources to help women get in. So I thought, you know, I, I do like challenges. So I thought this, you know, I, I got nothing to lose. Let's see if we can create a women's team and get them to be competitive. Because in my mind, in order to help the experience that I gain, a group of students that don't think they can do anything, the best way to get them confidence is to show them that they can do anything. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was to take that same model that I practiced and honed in high school and put it to work at the collegiate level with a group of women to see if they could get competitive. And then on multiple fronts, we wanted to also see if women, uh, men, uh, other teams, because it's predominantly male, would stop thinking of the team so much as a woman's team, but rather as a team they might lose too. Mm -hmm. 
because if that's the thought in their mind, we kind of broke the stereotype mm -hmm. that they may still think we're a women's team, but they're also thinking, how do they not lose to us? Mm -hmm. and, and I right. think that's a shift that's important. Yes. Um, and so that's what I've been doing the last two years with the CISA Puede Foundation. Right. Um, right. I'm, I'm going to jump in because it's very important to say this, that in our first year, we were hoping for a three-year plan, but in our first year, the team ended up placing third in the world. There were 50 teams from uh, over 12 countries. Uh, we were the first American team uh, in our first year of competition. And this past summer, because of the COVID situation, uh, the, the in-person portion of the competition wasn't there, but everything else still was. So the report, the um, uh, website, the stuff that you have to turn into the judges, all that stuff, we ended up this year finishing second in the world. Okay. Um, so we are, we are having success. It is making a difference, but we're not going to be happy until we win first. And so that's our goal. So hopefully next year, COVID will be under control enough for us to compete in person. And that would be our piece de resistance to show that a women's team could do anything a male team can do. How's so the, winning first place is our goal. How's the motivation with the young female students? Uh, at this point with the virtual environment and for that fact for for any of the other students but mainly for for the wave team that you're leading yeah well i should say too that uh the team is called desert wave and wave is an acronym it stands for women in autonomous vehicle engineering okay. and it was a rough this year we lost some members because just the inability to meet in person takes a toll and then other responsibilities come up and that takes its toll mm -hmm. um we did manage to work out a situation where when we needed to work on stuff, I converted my garage into a workshop. We'd have one student come who was obviously, they had to be COVID free for 14 days. Um, they'd wear a mask, I'd wear a mask, we'd wipe everything down. We'd work for no more than three hours at a time. As soon as they were done, I wipe everything down, they go home. Um, and so we kept the contact to a minimum. Um, the high school teams, it's harder all across Arizona because um just like you said in california they're competing but in arizona we couldn't we can't compete there's been no competition so mm -hmm. we're kind of in limbo right now so as a my job in that area is a little bit different so we're taking a different take we're going to a smaller size robot that could be moved from one student's house to another so the high school kids can compete in a competition how the actual competition will look like we won't know because it's several months away could be an in-person with a small number of people or it might be they videotape their robots performance and send that in mm -hmm. and then they'll be judged that way. So okay. we're trying to adapt as much as possible because the other option is dying and we don't want to die. So whatever we have to do to adapt to stay in the game, we're going to do. Right. Right. And I want to focus on something you mentioned. You lost a couple members mm -hmm. uh, at the college collegiate level. And I think, I don't know if that this is, this has to do with the fact that some of the students have to work they have other responsibilities you mentioned other responsibilities and i'm assuming because they're um at a low income area their parents might be financially struggling so the kids might actually have to step in and say i'm also going to be financially supporting in some sort of way or form or shape or taking care of the siblings that are now uh, being educated homeschooled to a certain extent and the parents go off to work whereas the the students might do virtual classes from college and at the same time 
they handle the situation of being the nanny at home. So that might be part of it. I don't know what the real issue is, but you know, that's, that's it's frustrating with this whole COVID-19, but I'm glad to see that you're pivoting and adjusting as best you can as a whole team. And you know, how, what, you know, in two phrase, in a phrase or two, what attracted you to join as the BP of Si Se Puede? Well, when I was joining, I, I wasn't necessarily applying for a VP position. That's something that Alberto decided uh, to present to me. I was looking for just the ability to be able to form a collegiate team mm. and to try to achieve this goal. And I knew that you know, from years of knowing an Alberto and his organization that I wanted to be associated with um, the type of programs that he was doing because I felt it was important. And he offered the avenue by which I wanted to try something new so it was a, a, a mutual uh, meeting that turned out to be perfect. So um, I, I can't say I knew exactly what I was trying to get when I approached him, but I had the basic ballpark. And so the VP is just a, uh, another aspect of that. Um, if I wasn't VP, I'd be just as happy. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, at this point, are you still a teacher at the Carl Hayden High School at the, oh, so how is that time managed? Well, I'm not. You're not. Okay. No, you're I, not. I okay. retired from public education. Okay, so. You retired. Okay. I just yeah. wanted to make that clear because I wasn't, I kind of got a little lost there. So yeah. you're also a mentor. You're a mentor to all many students that are in your team, but you're a mentor to so many other students that are not part of your team just by looking at what you've done and they somehow get a spark and start, you know, dreaming bigger. Mm -hmm. So how does that make you feel? And you mentioned something that you get that responsibility without really asking for that responsibility. So yeah. how, how are you dealing with it and how has your perception changed? So there's a story that goes along with that. And that's that when the four kids story in Wired magazine got well known. Wired invited us to, I guess, a conference, if you want to call it that, where they showcased all the different exhibits that were there that used to be in Wired magazine throughout the year. And so they had the robot Stinky there and us four students, the, the four students and the two teachers. And we were just supposed to talk to the public as they came by. And some people came specifically to see the certain things that they saw in Wired magazine. Well, this one uh, Latina woman, Latina, was walking with uh, a student, uh, a kid, a child, and with each hand, you know, held tightly. And, you know, without looking at anything else, without like looking like they were wandering, it's as if they knew we were exactly there and walked directly to us. And so I first thought, I thought, you know, here's the mother coming to ask us for help because we were probably the most the most different ethnically in the area. Most diverse team. Yeah. So, so we felt, I thought maybe we were the most approachable, okay. you know, for some reason. Okay. And that maybe she had a question about a third kid she lost or something. She looked very serious. There was no joy, no looking around. It was like, you know, focused. She was zoned in to you guys. Okay. Yeah. All right. And she came right up to us and she looked right at me and she said, you know, I wanted my four my uh, undocumented sons to see what your four undocumented students have done. Thank you for helping my people. And you know, what do you, what do you say to that? I mean, you, I, first of all, I didn't even know that was going to be the question. And even if I did, what could you possibly say? So it kind of just left us, you know, gasping for what do you say? 
Um, after she left, she spent about 20 minutes talking to the kids and the, her kids were asking questions and then they left. And then I sat down with Lorenzo and I said, you know, Lorenzo, you can't pick your nose in public anymore. And he goes, what does that mean? I said, well, you're a role model. You, you People are watching what you do. People are watching what I do. Uh, and he goes, well, I don't want to be a role model. I said, well, it's too late. You're already in the magazine. Everyone knows about you. They're all going to want to know what happens next. If you do something, someone might recognize you and say, oh, this is one of those kids. Look how bad he did or look how good he did. So he didn't like that. And at the same time, I realized, well, you know, now when I go to teacher staff meetings, I can't be the one hiding in the corner and stay quiet because people are going to expect me to say stuff. But I don't also don't want to be the one that says everything, thinking I know everything. So it comes down to I always have to look at what would the teacher do? What's the right thing to do if I'm supposed to speak up, not speak up? So in a way, you have the choice, like I told Lorenzo, you could live up to the expectations people have of you or you can let everybody down. There's the only two choices I can see. So trying to live up to it, I think helps make you a, a better person because sometimes you wonder, do I really want to do that? I don't want to do that. If I do that and I get caught, then I'm being on the news and then people are going to say, you know, so you think of all these things that run through your mind. Not that you wouldn't be a good person anyway, but it becomes more important mm -hmm. to make sure you don't do the wrong thing. So right. being a role model that way is okay. But I have to tell you, one of the things that's been really pleasurable since uh, the movie come, has come out is that I've got to do a lot of public speaking and I've gone to a lot of places where there are educators. Mm -hmm. and some of the uh, stories that I hear educators say about how I've impacted how they approach education, I think is also very rewarding. So if I can keep sharing the story of how I had success, not that I have the secret formula because there's many roads to success, maybe it will trigger or inspire others to do the same thing. Right. And so as long as I can do that, I feel like I have a value. Um, it feels good. Right. You know, and I mentioned, and thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I mentioned role models because sometimes my perception is students see people on television, people on magazines that do not look like them doing jobs that they don't see themselves doing. But when they see people like them doing jobs that they themselves think can't be done, you break that stereotype in their mind and that barrier and you get them that much closer and you limit them or break their crutch of an excuse mm -hmm. to move forward, which is what you did with Lorenzo saying, mm -hmm. now you're a role model. People are looking up to you and myself and you and yourself at that point of that conversation as to, you know, this can be done regardless of your legal status, regardless of your um, gender, regardless of your um, culture. If you mm -hmm. put your mind to it, you can achieve it. So I'm assuming that when this was, when this happens, a lot of students think I can really do this and they start yeah. believing on themselves and they start moving forward to that goal and they achieve it because mm -hmm. you put one step in front of the other, you eventually will get somewhere. It might take you five, six, 10, 20 years, but if you have that mindset, you're not limited anymore. So thank you for being that role model, not only to the students that you touch, but also to so many others that probably watch you, that probably have watched the movie and like, oh my God, this person, he's been able to do this and you break that uh, barrier in their mind. So that's awesome. 
What is the most surprising thing that has come out of all of this? You know, it's been, what, 16 years since that first competition. And I know for the first, almost for the first full year, you didn't get any media attention. But then after that, it kind of snowballed and you started, oh my God, what, what's going on? What has been the most surprising thing that you can reflect back and see? I think the, the idea that, um, you know, anybody can do anything they want to do. That's, it's a thing I always believed, but it's, it's more so evident when you can get other people to not only believe it, but enact it. And so that, that's surprising because sometimes you think, well, how do you pass your passion on to someone else? You know, how do you get them to get excited? How do you get them to commit the time? So that's always, to me, been kind of magical. Sometimes it works. I've had some kids that no matter what I say, I've had no effect. And so I can't say it's just something I'm doing. I think it's a combination of chemistry, the condition the student's in, where they're at, their part of the life, what stresses are uh, put upon them. So that's a combination, but it's always magical when you do make that connection. The other thing that's interesting is that despite the success, you can still see so much need out there in so many communities where there needs to be more success. And so it's kind of a combination of, in both directions. You know, I just saw a trailer today for the new movie that John Lugazamo is doing about the teacher that taught these kids how to play chess. And uh, uh, I guess in the, the inner city somewhere and then become national chess champions. So there needs to be more stories like this and about all groups. Um, but those kind of stories are what I looked up to when I was a kid. And I think the more positive examples we have, I mean, the superhero movies are great, but no one's going to be, you know, Tony Stark or Aquaman or whatever. But it's nice to see that. But the real people, the the real things that the astronauts had to do when they went to the moon for the first time and all the different things they had to experience. The astronauts or the aerospace engineers that are designing rockets that can land by themselves now and getting ready to go to Mars. I mean, cars that drive by themselves. We live in a very exciting time and we need role models of people that are doing these things so that other people can see all these opportunities are out there and you can get it. It's, it's up for grabs. It's not just for one kind of person. So, so when you ask me, what's the most exciting thing, I think it's the combination seeing the effect you can have, but then also realizing that there's so much more. But the biggest thing is that all those things were open for anyone who has the mind to put their mind to it. Anyone who has their mind to put their mind to it. That's awesome. That's incredible. Well, you know, what are the next steps for Freddie Lajbardi? You are the BEP <laughs> of Si Se Puede. You are a strong, long-lasting record of teaching STEM to students. You know, you are a speaker at this point, talking to different institutions and audiences. You are a very successful individual. But what is next for you at this point? Well, just like I, I try to tell people, you have to break things down mm-hmm. one step at a time. I, I, I think right now my immediate goal will be to see the women's team win the international competition. Okay. Awesome. Because then anybody who has an argument against women will lose that argument. Okay. And so I, I want that. Second thing is I want to live long enough to see people land on Mars. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so if I die after those two things, I'll be sort of okay. 
Okay. What's okay? You'll you'll be sort of okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Awesome. So we all have you know we all have mentors that we look up to, and do you have any mentors that you can mention? I know that you on our beginning of our conversation you mentioned that teacher at ASU that kind of pushed you towards being a teaching education individual. Mm -hmm. But is there any mentors other than that person or can you share with us? So initially that was my high school science teacher. Okay. Her name was Ann Justice. So she was the first one. But since then, uh, the ability, I should say, the inability for me to be able to execute some of these STEM fields requires me to reach out into the industry and find people that have the skills that also <clears throat> can work with us. And so some of the people I look up to are those mentors that I help pull in to work with the teams because I learn a lot from them. And believe it or not, also some of them are students. Um, one in particular is Oscar Vasquez. He was the, one of the four boys. He's the, the leader of the four boys. And the things that he has had to gone through, gone, you know, go through in his life um, um, and, and looking at how he had the ability to stay focused and accomplish those tasks despite odds that I think I have given up on, uh, to me, that's inspiring. It's, it's, I, think, I don't know if it's rare, but I, I think it's very unusual to find mentors that are younger than you. Mm -hmm. um, and in one way, I would say that in, in some respects, he, he's a mentor. Um, so I don't know if there's any one particular one. I mean, I, I, I just get my inspiration from wherever um, I see it. If I see Elon Musk, I mean, he may not be a perfect person. He may have stuff that's wrong with him. But in the big picture of things, what he's trying to do is phenomenal. Um, the idea that a person can own his own car company and then own his own space company and then put his car into space, his own car, that boggles the imagination. Name another person that right. can do that. Yeah, right. There is none. Yeah. There, there is very, yeah, he's the one and only at this point. Exactly. And he's so nonchalant about it. He doesn't flaunt it to a certain extent. But, you know, at the same time, I'm pretty sure he knows he's, he's, yeah. a, he's a big influence on a lot of people. So I think I, I get my influences from wherever I feel the passion. And so I don't know if there's one person. Awesome, I, awesome. I do know. And I and I this is kind of a little bit of a sad thing, but uh, Carl Sagan, when I was growing up, he used to do this series called series called Cosmos. Okay. And he really opened up the world of science in an easy to understand way. And one of the speeches he gave, and one of his little portions of his videos, was a speech called "The Pale Blue Dot." Okay. That speech puts humanity in perspective, in a way that I think most people don't look at humanity. And when you see that. where you are in the universe and what your role is, I think it helps center what you should be focused on. And, and I think that's one of, probably one of the best speeches. If I had to pick a speech that really puts you in your place right. in the universe, that's it. And Carl is the uh, mentor or was a mentor to Bill Nye, the science guy. So this mm -hmm. is pre-Bill Nye, the science guy. And I think what you're referring to as the pale blue dot, you're referring to the earth mm -hmm. being so small in this vast universe. And we are essentially insignificant to feel so important mm -hmm. that we pretty much want to destroy everything with whatever we do. And we're not being conscientious about the way we act or 
the way we act towards each other first mm -hmm. national unrest at this point and then the way we treat our planet and the environment and so we should be humbled by being alive and so honored to be part of this that we should take care of everything we do and i know this is a podcast based more focused on stem and we talk more on stem but the planet is part of our home so we should take care of it period well and i think something that and and, and this i believe wholeheartedly especially in education one of the things that's missing in stem education and education in general is inspiration and passion mm. and you know i think that it's one of the most underrated qualities that need to be developed in high school i think and, and even in college i think that those two things are underrated even in you know technology and stem when you think of people who've done incredible things so many times you don't know the agony they went to went through to get to that point you know i remember last summer not this summer just a year ago there was a woman who uh, she was able to come up with a mathematical algorithm to separate all the noise from the telescopes to be able to show people using computer simulation what a black hole looks like. That took 10 years. What inspires or motivates someone to spend 10 years of their life to do that? And can you imagine, and we saw the picture on Facebook of her face when she became the first human in history to see what a black hole would look like. Right. And so that's amazing. Yeah. And in, in, in anything you do, I mean, I used an analogy one time <clears throat> just to make a point because it's easier for people to relate to sports uh, analogies that, you know, when people were trying to break the four minute mile, it was thought to be impossible. But if you did it, your lungs would explode, your legs would fall off or whatever. It was just, it was impossibility. And at that time, obviously no internet, no TV, you barely had radio and newspaper. Just imagine People back then, when someone was announcing they were going to try to break a four-minute mile, and two people were within two or three seconds of doing that, and this took many years to do, when they announced they were doing a race, 400,000 people showed up to watch. Just That just blows your mind. <laughs> because they pre, wanted to be... Social media. They either point, wanted right? to see yeah. someone explode, yeah. or they wanted to see someone break the world record right. that everyone said was impossible. Right. Yeah, that's crazy. motivates people to yeah. do these things. Yeah. You know, right. same thing could be for STEM when you want to make the first rocket to land by itself. You name it. So to me, I think that is the biggest thing right. that uh, I, I think that education could really help develop is how do you get people to follow their passion in these fields right. so that they can exactly. achieve these things? Because, yeah. you know, Elon Musk had seven businesses fail before he found PayPal. Right. Yeah. 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 Even, even, at this, yeah even at this time, you know, space travel had been dormant for, for almost a decade or more than a decade. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden with the dragon going up and taking two American astronauts mm -hmm. launching from American soil to go to the ISS, a lot more people watched mm -hmm. than they've watched in a very long time, any space mission. Yep. And that's because they wanted to see somebody succeed. And that's because the imagination exploded. And I'm pretty sure a lot of students and a lot of young individuals now are saying, I want to be an astronaut. And the next target is not the moon. The next it's target Mars. is Mars. I yeah. want to be able to go to Mars. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, obviously, um, there was a lot of 
aircraft shuttle missions that would go up and down and I would watch them. And I had the dream of becoming an astronaut at some point. Um, the closest I got, it was mechanical engineering, but that's close enough for me. But at the same time, people and young individuals need that passion, that uh, fuel to continue moving forward. And if those sort of things, positive things, can fuel people and students to move forward as a unity and nation, that's amazing. That's, that's um, I can applaud to that. That's incredible. Thank you so much. Um, next couple of questions are really fast. Uh, what do you believe your superpower to be? If you don't have one, which superpower would you select and why would you select that superpower? I, I think my superpower is being able to pull in people to projects to help them help the help have them help the students. I think okay. that's a superpower. My, my ability to connect with people, I think, is a superpower. That's awesome. Ability to connect with people. That's awesome. Is there any book, any movie or podcast that you believe has made an impact in your life and you wish more people would take advantage of it? Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's again, there's so many movies. Uh, Hidden Figures is a good one. Oh, um, yes. uh, the Right Stuff is yes. a, a long movie. That's a, a good one. Um, there are series, too, that, that do that. Um, just, you know, any movie that can be inspirational. I mean, uh, October Sky is right. another one that I think for our high school kids is, is, a, is a great thing. Right. It basically demonstrates that your education is a way out, right. the way out of all the trouble that you're in, you don't have to be a football star. Right. So I think things, stories like that are, are, you know, movies I think that are inspirational. Right. Awesome. 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 Or Freedom Riders. And I like that movie yep. or stand, stand in the liver. Stand in the liver or, yeah, you know, spare part. Spare part. <laughs> Obviously that's kind of what I was hinting at. I thought you were going to say that, but <laughs> never. Um, what is your definition of success? I know that everybody has a definition of success at various points in your life. But right now, for Freddie, what is your definition of success at a personal level? Hang on one second. Sure. Definition of success is if you've done everything you can do and you've been the best, and if you can even go beyond what you thought you can do, I think that's the definition of success. I think when you don't do your best, when you don't try hard, when you undersell yourself, I think that's when you don't live up to your full potential. You know, as human beings, you have the ability, and this is what separates us from all the animals. We can imagine something and then make that something true. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know if any other animal has the capability to do it on the level that we can. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even though we went to the moon, you know, in, in the 60s, mm -hmm. uh, it still boggles my imagination that we can do, that humans can do something like that. So... That's what I think is my definition of success. If, if you can push the envelope of science and technology and what humans are capable of, whether it's technological or physiological, like someone breaking the world record and, and running, uh, I think those are the things that, that uh, would consider success. And if you've done everything you can to be the best you can be, that's success. That's success. That's Which, awesome. Whether you win or not. Awesome. Awesome. Whether you win or not. Yes. And yep. fell, fell fast and fell often. So you can learn off of those failures and continue moving forward. That's incredible. Yep. This last question. I really enjoy asking this last question of every guest that I have on the show. I want you to imagine yourself being able to travel back in time, being able to travel back in time and see yourself 
walking off of that classroom frustrated when you were just a young teacher who wanted to change the world and change students, but were frustrated because of several things that kind of lined up. If you could go back now, and it's about five or six o'clock as you're walking towards your car, and you could just jump out and say, hey, Freddie, hold on. I am you from the future, and I have about two to three minutes. I want to share these three pieces of advice. What would you say to that young Freddie? You better hang on because it's going to be a wild ride. Okay. Don't give up on your dreams. Okay. Things will find a way to work out. Just keep fighting and never give up. Awesome. Yes. Keep fighting and never give up. Don't ever give up on your dreams. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Freddie. Thank you, sir. Thank you for, for being part of a success innovation episode. I want to acknowledge you for all the effort that you put in, for everything that you do for the community at large, for the STEM initiatives that you're pushing through the organization of Si Se Puede, for not giving up on your dreams and pushing forward back in 2004, a team of individuals from a low-income high school and allowing them to dream big and to achieve greatness beyond their wildest dreams. Thank you so much for continuing to be well, that inspiring mentor. And with that, I want to say thank you to the audience. Thank you for joining another wonderful episode of Success Innovation. This has been Lazo Herrera and Freddie. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for finishing another fantastic episode with Success Innovation. Today, we learned so much more about Freddie Lesbardi and how he managed to pivot at one point that dissolution that was beginning to weigh him down as an early high school teacher. It is motivating to see individuals so passionate about STEM who are supporting and encouraging the younger generation. Thank you, Freddie Lajbardi, for your time and conversation with me. This has been Lazaro Herrera for Success Innovation. Thank you so much. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.